for our listeners out there, I just want to paint the picture. Uh, Mr. Bork was reading out of a small blue-covered book that looked like it could have been right out of the uh, the 1870s, yellowing pages, and I'm not sure if you could share with our, our listeners the, the source. Mr. Yes, I, I'm looking at the Manual for Courts Martial, 1898, uh, and it has a uh, appendix that has the Articles of War. Good morning, everyone. I am Captain Justin Command, and welcome back to another episode of Fred Talks. Today, we journey into the dark ages of military justice, or at least what I assume were the dark ages. That is, the time before the Uniform Code of Military Justice, the time before the Manual for Courts Martial. The UCMJ was established in 1950. What did we do before then? Did rules exist? Were they official? Were they binding? I don't know the answers to these questions, but I am sure. I know someone who has all of the answers, our regimental historian, Mr. Fred Bork. Mr. Bork knows that you can only succeed on the battlefields of tomorrow if you first learn about the battlefields of yesterday. So today, join us as we journey into the land before the UCMJ. So, good morning, Mr. Bork. Our listeners have a pretty good idea of the JAG Corps post-1950, post-1968. But the world before the adoption of the Uniform Code or the creation of some type of authoritative manual for courts martial, that world is, is a bit dark for us. So maybe you can shine a little bit of light on those proverbial dark ages of military justice. Good morning to you, Captain Command, and yes, I, I think I, I can talk a little bit about what it was like to try courts martial in the Army 150 years ago. So I'm going to focus on the Articles of War 1874, which was the first major revision of our military criminal legal system since the Civil War. So the bottom line up front is that courts martial were very different because lawyers were not involved, were not participants at courts martial. And this is because even really up until uh, 1950, when Congress enacted a uniform code of military justice, uh, lawyers were not involved in trying or defending or judging, or otherwise participating at courts martial. And this is because courts martial in this era are really not seen as courts. They are tools of discipline. Yes, they're called courts martial, and yes, there is a, an accused and a plea of guilty uh, or not guilty, but lawyers aren't involved because courts martial are tools for the commander, and they're all about discipline. Okay, sure, maybe justice is done, but that's not really why we have courts martial. So, in personam jurisdiction for courts martial was, in peacetime, every soldier in the army. In wartime, civilians and camp followers, others accompanying the army, might also be prosecuted. Subject matter jurisdiction was a little bit different. 
it probably will come as a surprise to most of you that in peacetime, a court-martial had no jurisdiction over common law felonies like murder or rape. If you were out in the territory of uh, the Dakotas uh, or New Mexico uh, in the 1870s and you committed a murder, you couldn't be tried by a court-martial. You were turned over to civilian authorities. And in fact, it's not until 1950 in the UCMJ that courts martial had subject matter jurisdiction over murder and rape at all times. Um, there were some other unusual offenses, though, under the Articles of War in uh, 1874. Um, for example, if you were a soldier and you were found one mile from camp without leave in writing from your commanding officer, you could be court-martialed and punished. And for our listeners out there, I just want to paint the picture. Uh, Mr. Bork was reading out of a small blue-covered book that looked like it could have been right out of the uh, the 1870s, yellowing pages, and I'm not sure if you could share with our, our listeners the, the source. Mr. Yes, I, I'm looking at the Manual for Courts Martial, 1898, uh, and it has a uh, appendix that has the Articles of War. I should probably say at this point, since Justin has brought up the manual, is that it wasn't until 1895 that we had a manual for courts martial. So your question certainly has got to be, well, if we didn't have a manual, how did courts martial know what to do? Uh, and the answer is they sort of followed their noses or at least had a pretty good idea of what was going on in state courts, and they would follow that process. But a little bit more on that in a minute. So there were four types of courts martial in this period. A general court martial, a garrison court martial, a regimental court martial, and a summary court martial. So at a general court martial, um, Officers only, by the way, only officers can serve on courts martial. All officers are panels. There's no such thing as a military judge, so you can't have trial by a military judge alone. Every single court martial is a panel. For a general court, the preference was that you always have 13 members. You could have as few as five, but the Articles of War said try to have 13. Uh, when you came in, you had to have your full dress uniform on, and you had to have your sword with you as you served. Uh, this was a big deal. Um, and uh, again, officers only 5 to 13 members. Compare that to the UCMJ in 1950, which said that a general court had to have a minimum of 5, and a special court under the UCMJ 3. So garrison and regimental courts, which are pretty much the same thing as special courts, that required three members uh, and a summary court one, just as today. Fast forward, I think everyone knows that uh, general courts now in our most recent amendments to the UCMJ, I think eight members and, and 12 for capital cases. But these are where these numbers came from. I always think it's sort of surprising that back in the 1800s, they thought that you should have 13 
on a general court. Um, but that's the way it was. Now, other participants. There is a judge advocate. The judge advocate prosecutes the case in the name of the United States. The judge advocate is not an army lawyer. Lawyers did not serve as judge advocates at courts martial. In fact, in this period, I think the entire JAG department is probably 10 or 11 judge advocates. Um, so they're not at courts. The judge advocate is a line officer. This is an extra duty. Maybe he's done some studying on what's going on in, uh, in courts to be able to know what to do. But the judge advocate prosecutes the case. He swears the witnesses. He presents the evidence. Um, the Articles of War provided that the convening authority should appoint a, quote, suitable, unquote, officer to serve as counsel for the accused. But if a suitable officer wasn't available, then the judge advocate, believe it or not, acted as the counsel for the prisoner. He was supposed to object to leading questions and also object to any questions presented to the accused that might tend to, quote, criminate, unquote, the accused. So you can see this was really a beautiful system. You're the prosecutor. You get to help out the accused if you feel like it. Uh, how about pleas? You could plead guilty uh, to some or all the offenses. Of course, you could plead not guilty. If you did plead guilty, there's no providency inquiry, and no one's going to ask you if you really know what you're doing. You could say, yes, I, I plead guilty. Probably not a bad strategy. Um, if you're talking about a panel of officers and the president of the court is the senior officer, unless you really have a good reason for pleading not guilty, probably not a bad strategy to throw yourself on the mercy of the court with a plea of guilty. Um, as I said, there's no manual for courts martial till 1895. So how is evidence presented? Uh, what can the court hear? Well, there are no rules of evidence. Um, if the court wants to hear hearsay, it certainly can. Although even in this period, courts understood that it was always best to be able to hear a witness with personal knowledge. And certainly there are going to be some objections to hearsay. But it's not forbidden. Um, voting is two-thirds. Two-thirds carries the day, even for a death sentence. A death sentence may be imposed with just a two-thirds vote. Uh, last thing you talk about is punishments. For general courts, enlisted folks could be confined on bread and water. You could also sentence a soldier to solitary confinement, but no more than 84 days a year. I'm not sure where they got 84. Another permissible punishment was the ball and chain. You could direct that the accused be confined uh, on a ball and chain, but, quote, only in extreme cases, unquote. But the articles leave no other guidance as to what constituted an extreme case. So it sounds like, sir, thank you for taking us through that. That's an awesome uh, way to provide a little bit of light to those those uh, dark ages, if you will, of, of military justice. And, and it sounds like deference to the military justice problem gave way to this need for, as you said, uh, judicialization, civ civilianization. Uh, 
where did the uh, desire to bring in civilian crimes into this uniform code where does where does that develop uh, those crimes that were handled by territories or states in the past that are now brought into the code where does that uh, movement come from i i think that the best answer is that prior to 1950 after every major conflict uh, the army, the armed forces, rapidly demobilized and went back to a very, very small uh, all-volunteer force. But after World War II, when we made the decision that we wanted to keep a large peacetime standing army that required a draft and required that citizens be involuntarily conscripted into the army to serve, I think at this point, uh, Congress recognized that it was no longer practicable to have an Articles of War that didn't cover all the offenses. Uh, you also need to remember that uh, um, if the state courts and the federal courts, uh, they were busy, and there really wasn't any reason not to let uh, courts martial handle murders and rapes. But again, I think the best answer is a large peacetime standing army and a draft. Well, thank you, Mr. Bork. Uh, thanks for sharing your insight with us on the history of military justice uh, 150 years ago. And uh, I, for one, am glad that there have been some improvements in the due process uh, afforded to our soldiers, uh, especially that I am no longer subject to the ball and chain. So I appreciate that, sir. Thanks for uh, uh, giving us your insights on another episode of Fred Talks. You're welcome. Interested in providing material to the JAG Corps' Future Concepts Directorate? Reach out to us via Twitter or LinkedIn at JAGFCD. Or visit our website at tjaglix.army.mil forward slash FCD. That's tjaglcs.army.mil forward slash FCD. We're always on the lookout for the next guest, topic, discussion, or yes, even the next Fred Talk. As always, the views expressed on the podcast are the views of the participants and do not necessarily represent those of the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School, the United States Army, the Department of Defense, or any other agency of the United States government. Reference in this episode to any specific commercial product, process, or service, or the use of any trade, firm, or corporation name is for the information and convenience of the public and does not constitute endorsement, recommendation, or favoring by the Department of Defense. Remember that you can only succeed on the battlefields of tomorrow if you first learn about the battlefields of yesterday. So thank you for joining us today. For the JAG Corps' Future Concepts Directorate, I am Captain Justin Command. We'll catch you on the next episode of Fred Talks. <music>